We are studying Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, and we're specifically trying to apply this to what this means for our uh, view of the world and life and our calling in it, the Christian world view. I'd like to read to you from Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to pick up back in uh, verse 21, which we studied last week, and uh, read down to the end of the chapter. But we'll be looking specifically at verses 24 through 27. If you are following along, we'll be considering what it's all about. Let me explain in a moment here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard and which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, this mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Let's pray together. Our Father, even as you've appointed our very life and salvation should be drawn from our Lord Jesus Christ, so now we would abide in him and his word in us and pray that you would teach us your way. Oh Lord, we pray once again that you would fulfill more and more of your holy will in us that having received Christ Jesus the Lord, we would be rooted and grounded in him and be able then to taste and see that you are good, that your word is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. And we pray that you would give us the sense of the richness of this mystery as we read here. We pray that you would open your word to us by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, the world's changing very quickly, as you know. Our modern world prides itself on being more and more inclusive, although the reality seems to be that we are less and less connected to others in it. Much has been written about uh, the disintegration of our relationships in society, and I'm not going to make a big point about it. I won't weary you with the collapse of marriage and birth rates in America and the crisis of loneliness and the psychological toll of social media and all the things that the, the press seems to just love to tell us, all the bad news, right? Um, I won't weary you with statistics, as I, as I usually do. You know it. You feel it, right? And the younger you are, 
the, the, the worse it is. Recent headlines read, Young people report more loneliness than the elderly. Um, that's USA Today. I don't read it. I just get the quote from Google. <laughs> loneliness begets more loneliness, says The Atlantic. Social isolation is killing us, New York Times. Well, the point is, it, look, in, in many ways in America, we have a much more comfortable life than previous generations and other nations. But even if we know how to make a living, we don't know how to make a life. Um, the late Anglican writer John Stott wrote this, the modern technocratic society which destroys transcendence and significance, destroys community also. We are living in an era of social disintegration. People are finding it increasingly difficult to relate to one another. So we go on seeking the very thing that eludes us, love in a loveless world. It was written in 1992, uh, prophetic. Well, here we are together at church. Here we have a community. I mean, is this what we need? Um, it certainly helps. Though so, uh, the, the German confessing church pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned once, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. That sounds clever. What does that mean? Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. He's warning that being with people in busyness is one way that people simply keep busy and that what we really need first is to be able to be comfortable before God. Loved, assured, encouraged. And then we're ready for other people. Or as old Henry Skugel put it, that in our Christian life we shouldn't be merely driven by threatenings or bribed by promises or constrained by laws, that our salvation is far greater a thing than forgiveness or peace or new life or any other blessing, that, that what we need to have or what we need to learn is what's before us today. For we have here, in just a few words, one of the most profound statements about the position and privilege of the Christian that can be found anywhere in Scripture as he writes it here, Christ in you. That's a very big subject. Uh, one, one man write, uh, wrote, it's the, uh, the most important doctrine you've never heard of. Union with Christ. It's a very big subject that I have lots to tell you about, and I'm going to give you a lot of data today. I'm going to teach you a lot of things, and so you'll have to pay extra attention but what we have in our passage is what's called here a glorious mystery of the, the riches of this mystery, the riches of the glory of this mystery. It is rich. It is glorious. And this is what we're going to be learning today, what it's all about. Christ in you. We'll consider what this phrase means and then three practical implications from the passage about this glorious mystery. First, then, Christ in you. This is the main thing. It's the foundation of everything else. He calls it in verse 26 a mystery, or in verse 27, the riches of the glory of this mystery. But you, 
need to understand how Paul uses this word, as he often does. He, he doesn't mean that it's something that nobody understands. It's not that kind of mystery. He, he means uh, something that was previously hidden, but now is revealed. Well, what is that? The, the Bible doesn't actually give us a definition, but it uses several rich illustrations or pictures to explain what this means. And I'll, I'll give you some. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you could do nothing. Here's a, a, an agricultural, a horticultural picture of a living, vital union with Christ, where we, we, we draw the sap of our life from him. Can you imagine, can you picture that you draw your very nourishment, your strength, your life itself from Jesus? That's the picture. Or to change it completely, here it is in verse 18 in our passage, just before where I started to read. Paul uses a bodily metaphor that he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. Um, can, can you imagine that you and I and all the, all the believers are, are, are members of one body that's joined to the head, Jesus, that we are all joined together so that uh, all that he is and all that he has and all that he does, we share. I'll explain more about that in a minute, but what he has done, we have done. What he has won, we have won. All that he has, his, his perfection, his righteousness, his sonship, all of that is ours too because we are joined together with him as one body, uh, one person. Elsewhere, Paul changes it again. He uses building imagery, specifically a holy temple. When he writes to the Ephesians, he writes about how you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone in which the whole building joined together rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, in which you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God, can you imagine us as together one great building on the foundation of Jesus, where his Holy Spirit abides. Built on Christ the rock, safe, strong, and secure, that we rise to be a holy temple. Well, from bodies and buildings, Paul goes on to the more intimate metaphor of marriage. He writes that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. And this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Can you picture saying, I do, to Jesus, so that your happiness and sorrows are joined to his inextricably, that your days, your choices, your, your life is bound up with him? And, you know, marriage has legal aspects, too. And so when we are joined to Christ, he assumes our debts of sin, and we possess his righteousness, and that we are to be presented as a beautiful bride in the presence of God that he delights in. Paul speaks of uh, 
a body, a building, a marriage. He develops a federal or covenant union, uh, like a king and country, so that when, when David sinned, King David, the whole nation suffered. When he was victorious, the whole nation was delivered. He, he describes it as, as if it were just these two great heads of humanity, Adam and Christ. And by one man, Adam, many were made sinners, but through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. And so just as we were joined to Adam by nature, by physical birth, we are joined to Christ for a second spiritual birth. And one more picture, if I can continue to keep your attention. Jesus himself gave this in his prayer, comparing our union to the Trinity when he prayed that we may be one, that, sorry, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you loved me. Well, with these and other metaphors, your union with Jesus Christ is so illustrated, pictured, and it's, it's quite a lot to take in. I've had to cut it down considerably because, you know, every doctrine can't be related in 140 characters. Union with Christ is a vast, comprehensive, glorious truth. My favorite theologian of the 20th century, John Murray, a very careful uh, and often reserved but faithful writer, said union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. You say, well, what about like justification, the, the hinge on which true religion turns? Well, you know, Murray points out, we're justified in Christ. And that God doesn't give you blessings uh, or um, privileges piecemeal. Uh, okay, I can give you forgiveness. Oh, okay, here's adoption. Oh, here's justification. That, that's, that's not the way it works. God has given you himself in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. And in him, we read, we enjoy and possess his righteousness, his holiness, his eternal life to our justification, to our adoption, to our blessing. Um, it's in Christ. L let me give you just a sample. And I realize it's a lot of data today, right? I'm trying to cover, I'm trying to cover the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation in, in, in about two more minutes. Okay, so, all right. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are, do you know, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. And there are a lot more verses that way. Um, likewise, we are not only said to be in Christ, but Christ is said to be in us. That's what we read here in verse 27. Christ in you the hope of glory elsewhere. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin and your spirit is alive 
because of righteousness. Sometimes we have it both ways in the same passage. We read, uh, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Us in him, he in us. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so here's why it's the central thing. You're not saved by some abstract decree of God. You're saved by, by a person, in a person. Not by what we have done, not by who you are. It's because of what Christ has done. What he is. Only in Christ are you chosen, called, regenerated, justified, sanctified, redeemed, assured of resurrection, and given every spiritual blessing. A union that spans space and time, so that Paul can say that the Christian has died with Christ and has been raised with Christ. Okay. So uh, you see why uh, I, I said earlier, a Christian isn't just driven by threatenings or bribed by promises or constrained by laws. I mean, uh, these are things that we, we have, laws, blessings, so forth. But, but we have Christ, and in him, all, the, all these things are ours. These are not abstract things, as though people could say, well, I don't, I don't understand why you Christians say that uh, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved than, than Jesus, because, but, but you don't understand, salvation is Jesus, right? There, there is no other salvation. There, it's not like God could give you something called salvation. That's not the way it works. It's someone He's given you a savior. He is your hope. He is your life. He is your all. And how practical is it? Well, you might look at me, look with me, for instance, at chapter three, one page over in my Bible, where this is applied. And you see now the intricacies of these things. If then you were raised with Christ, did you know that you were raised? Well, seek those things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not things on the earth, for you died. Do you know that you died? And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All right. You, you, you died. You rose. Your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. And... Um, this is all I'm going to be able to say today about this great doctrine. I've given you a lot of Bible, a lot, to show you how important it is. I've, I've just begun to say how practical it is. It's why you can't have anything called salvation without Jesus, because he is our salvation. Or as another writer puts it, it doesn't matter how close your house might be to the electric lines. Unless you're actually hooked up, it's not going to do you any good. And in the same way, Unless you're united to Christ, all that he's achieved, all that he's done, his cross, his resurrection, his glorification at the right hand of his Father, all of which is yours. But that will not be of any help to you unless you're connected to him. You see how it works. And so, if you have it, this is a very profound relationship. It is a 
profound relationship with profound implications. It's, it's mind-stretching, it's, it, but it's very rich and full. And Paul, just in this little passage that I read, uh, verses 24 through 27, uh, gives us three implications I'll just cover quickly here. That here we see that our union with Christ means, in reverse order, that we're united to Christ in His glorious hope, in His Gentile mission, and in His gospel afflictions. Uh, first, the, the glorious hope. Because we're united to Christ, we have a, a glorious hope. Verse 27, the, the, the riches of the glory is of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or said again a different way in chapter 3, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All right. So the, the head has already got, gone ahead where the body is coming soon, that we will be raised, we will be glorified as he was glorified, we will enjoy fellowship with God for all eternity in glory as he has enjoyed fellowship with God in glory for all eternity, and on and on. This is our glorious hope. And this hope, in part, is very practical. He says, um, for example, it's why we can't go on living in sin. He says, we died to sin in his death. And we're alive to God now in, in his resurrection. How can you who died to sin go on living in it? It's completely incompatible with who you are and what you've become and where you're going. It's like walking backward. We need to keep a glorious hope in our eye so we can walk as we should. Um, there's a lot of talk today about identity, the idea that if we're going to be authentic, we need to have our identity uh, as an authentic identity. Uh, often this means identifying with our sexual desires. Um, and, and, and Paul says, look, when you realize that you are in Christ, that, if you like, he defines our identity. So whatever disordered desires you may still have, they don't define you anymore. So you see how he puts it in chapter 3. This is, this is not me going on some rant, as usual. This is chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you'll appear with him in glory. Well, there's a glorious hope. Therefore, put to death your members that are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you're to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his old deeds. And you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there's neither Jew or Greek or circumcised, uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But, here it is, Christ is all and in all. All right. So here's how he preaches the Christian life to us. It isn't, do this, it's right. Do this, you ought to do that. Don't, don't lie, that's wrong. Well, I mean, that's true, I suppose. But his point is, look, to live is Christ. He is where your, your life is, your identity is found, not in self, certainly not in sin. 
and in him we find the true freedom and we await eternal glory. We've put on Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means something great for a glorious hope. And you keep that hope in your eye and you will walk as you should. It means something also here for his Gentile mission. End of verse uh, 24. For the sake of his body, the church, in which I became a minister, and so forth, to fulfill the word of God, this, uh, this word, uh, to, to, sorry, verse 27, to, the, to them God willed to make known the riches of his glory, the mystery among the Gentiles, as he explains also to verse 29, to this end I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. All right. So, so what, is it, what does this mean? And what does union with Christ have to do with, uh, with Paul specifically re- recounting his, his labors? Well, he's doing all this. He says, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I mean, he's serving the Lord. And in serving the Lord, Paul isn't just uh, going to take it easy because, you know, Christ is at work and things then should be easy for him. No, he says, I'm laboring. To this end, I labor. But even as he works, he knows that it's Christ's mighty power working through him. I mean, he's, uh, he's bringing the good news of Jesus to the nations, this unpopular doctrine of a crucified Jewish Messiah who's been crucified by the Romans uh, in, in the past, and how this is the hope of the world? That doesn't seem like a very promising future. But Paul knows that everything doesn't depend upon him. If everything depended on him, he, he might live his life in, in fear or in pride, do his work in that thing, but, but he explains that it is God's working, and that's why it's powerful. Or as he t- explains elsewhere, that we, you and I too, are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we then as workers together with him plead with you not to receive the grace of God. Workers with him. This is what union with Christ means for his gospel mission and for, I guess, ours also. That because we're united to Jesus, we represent Jesus. That we're speaking upon his behalf to the world and pleading with people to be reconciled to God. But we're doing so as though God himself were pleading through us. We're working, but with his power. And that's an amazing thought. That needs to give us some confidence or boldness. Because, frankly, you don't have the power to raise the dead. You don't have the power to make the deaf hear and the blind see. You know who does? I know. Jesus. The power to raise the dead, the power to make deaf people hear, the people to, power to make blind people see. In short, in short, all saving power and virtue lies in Christ, who is working in us and with us and through us. And that's why it's important for the Gentile mission. And finally, for, uh, it, this gives Paul some joy 
in his gospel suffering, gospel suffering, working back one more verse to verse 24. Now he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the church. That's a daring way to speak. To suggest that somehow there's some, something lacking in Christ's afflictions. Especially since everything else he says in this letter assures us just how full of redemption we already have. How we're completing Christ. How he saved us to the uttermost. How we've received everything in him. Eternally being reconciled in him. You are complete or in Christ, he says elsewhere. But what does he mean? <coughs> Paul is suffering in prison. Why is he suffering? Well, because he's an ambassador of Christ to the nations, and, and that hasn't necessarily been received as well. So he's suffering, he says here, on behalf of the church, even on the behalf of the Colossians. And, and yet, strikingly, because of this union, he knows that it's not just his isolated sufferings. Christ himself is suffering. You remember how Paul first learned about that important connection when he was himself persecuting the church and Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's my body my sufferings. And so here in verse 24, you notice how he joins together in the single sentence, my sufferings for you and the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. Because for Christ to bring his salvation to the world is going to mean affliction for him, for his body, the church. And Paul rejoices not, not, not in his pain, but that he is not suffering alone for no purpose. His suffering is Christ's suffering for them, for the world's salvation. Or as somebody put it cleverly, afflictions that are not for propitiation, but for propagation. little vocab lesson for you today. Christ's, Christ's sufferings for his body are not going to be in vain. Paul is glad that he is able to suffer to bring them salvation because it's all part of Christ's suffering and it will be rewarded. Meanwhile, he reminds us we don't just share in his suffering, we share in the comfort he gives, the promise that he's going to be with us, the promise he's going to carry us through, and so that in your sufferings you're never alone. And uh, this then is what union for Christ means in his gospel sufferings. Okay, so again, I warned you, a lot of data. Uh, not, not a lot of uh, interesting illustration, uh, perhaps, to explain it to you. And even with all this, I have barely scratched the surface of the topic of union of, with Christ. The central truth 
of the whole doctrine of salvation. I hope I've at least expanded your mind a little bit with all of this. Maybe you can go back and listen to all these verses I've been giving you. But I do want to conclude with what this means for a Christian worldview. And I'll go back for the moment to John Stott's comment I read at the beginning, how our modern technocratic society destroys transcendence and significance, destroys community also. In this area, era rather of social disintegration, people find it increasingly difficult to relate to each other. And we go on seeking the very thing that eludes us, love in a loveless world. Well, we know, we feel, that deep down we were made for a community of love. And as we know, as we've learned in our country, we can have all, we can have all kinds of other things, but not have the heart of what we need. And so at the very heart of the Christian gospel is not merely a, a promise of justification or of a new life or a new identity, but of union and communion with Christ and with each other forever. This is the main thing. That salvation is ultimately not a private individualistic thing that will happen when we die. It's Jesus, to whom we are reunited by the Holy Spirit. It's all ours, today and forever. We're joined to Him, and we're going with Him. Spirituality is a fascinating subject to many people today. People are more and more commonly saying that they're, they're not religious, but they are spiritual. Spiritual, but not religious. And often we run across the idea of spirituality these days in the popular world that involves maybe the pursuit of spiritual experiences or a link to some emotional and mental well-being, sometimes suggesting practices like Eastern meditation and mindfulness. Mindfulness is fine as far as it goes, but of course you, you notice that Christian spirituality has very little to do with all of this way of thinking, all of which concentrates a lot on us. The Christian way of thinking actually concentrates very little on us. That rather than searching for an identity, trying to find ourselves, that you discover who you truly are when you are found in Jesus. Uh, the now retired minister of our largest church, Columbia, South Carolina, Sinclair Ferguson, writer I'd recommend to you, he, he explains it this way. Occasionally, the New Testament speaks of becoming a Christian in terms of receiving Christ and thus getting Christ into our lives. But the emphasis is on the need to be taken out of ourselves and our sin and to be found in Christ. And this gives union with Christ a very important and practical dimension. It's not thought of primarily as a subjective experience which encourages us to look in and look down. Rather, it's something that lifts us up and draws us into the glorious liberty of the children of God, up and out. 
And I think that when we finally get to see the glory of that union and riches, so we're going to forget ourselves entirely. And this is what we need. When we look at ourselves, when we're alone with ourselves, we see patterns of failure, of guilt, and of shame. I do. But then united with Christ, I find something completely different in me. If Christ is in me, if Christ is in you, all is done. Victory is won. All is ours. What can you possibly name that he does not have? Which will give you confidence, grace, and power to live. Which will take you out of yourself. And that you would be lost in the glory of the riches of this grace. That you can confidently approach him. And that he ever lives to make intercession. Uh, we're here to be glad. We're glad to be here, rather, in the, in the church but what was it that he, Bonhoeffer said again? Let him who can't be alone beware of community. This is what you need. And once you have this, then busy or alone, all is well. A Christian is a new creature in Christ. And yet, I think for many Christians, this remains, for too many Christians anyway, it remains an unclaimed treasure, knowing that they are united to Christ, but then somehow it doesn't have effects in their lives, like a long-distance marriage, like a long-distance arranged marriage in which faith in Christ has resulted in a new legal condition and even a new name, but has not resulted in a real relationship of love, and that salvation is still thought of as a transaction, as though you're, you're getting something from the bus ticket counter, a promise of heaven or something. Salvation is not a legal declaration merely for our future, and, and Christianity is not trying to add Jesus Christ into our modern quest for personal spirituality. I say again, rather than trying to find an identity or find yourself, this teaches us that we can discover who we truly are by being found in Christ. Better by far. Let me give you one more analogy as we conclude. This not a biblical uh, illustration of union. It's a biblical illustration, but one that I'm going to apply to it here. In 1 first, in first Samuel, we, we read about Jonathan's love for, for David. And it's, it says as soon as uh, he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and wouldn't let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And beloved brothers and sisters, this is the picture I want to leave you with. That the Lord Jesus Christ has knit himself to you because he loved you. And just like Jonathan takes his own robe that was on him, gave it to David. Here's my armor. Here's my sword. Here's my bow. Here's my belt. And every morning David would put on Jonathan's robe and sword and so forth, knowing that 
Well, these were Jonathan's, but now they're his own. So it is for you in Christ. That he is yours. His life is yours. His righteousness is yours. His resurrection is yours. His holiness is yours. The love of his Father, all the love which, with which the Father has ever loved his Son, is yours. You are knit together with Christ. Is that not a glorious thing? And nothing, no, nothing, no, not even death itself now can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what it's all about. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are good, and we have tasted and seen that you are good. We pray that um, even as we ourselves know our anxieties, our, our loneliness, our feelings of hopelessness at times, our shame, we pray that this glorious truth would again and again break as a mighty wave upon our souls and wash away all that is in our past, all that no longer defines us or describes our future, that to live would be Christ and to die would be gain. We pray that he would fill our horizon, be our full vision, and that our life, being hidden with Christ and God, would become immeasurably more glorious and rich. Oh, Father, seal it to every heart. I pray for anyone who doesn't know the riches of the glory of the things that I have talked about, but who desires them. Even as it is promised, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So may this be today, a day of salvation, not merely a legal declaration for the future, but a day in which he or she is joined forevermore to the glorious Christ in whom we pray. Amen. It was uh, common in Puritan writings to distinguish union from communion. Union with Christ is that which we have. It doesn't depend upon how we feel. It's a fact. It's as uh, real as a building, as a marriage, whatever you want to say. Communion, though, they would use that word to describe the the felt nearness, closeness, fullness of that union. And that does go up and down. Sometimes the Lord seems far. Uh, Sometimes we're very distracted. The uh, communion that we have in Him is based on our union, but often needs to be, if you like, rekindled. Just like a husband and wife, they are married. There is a union but the the joy of their communion sometimes needs refreshing. And and so it is that the Lord has appointed a a table called the Lord's Table, which we read, the, the bread that we break, is it not the communion? The body of Christ, the blood, the, the, the cup which we drink, is it not communion with the blood of Christ? Intended once again to bring Christ near, make it real, 
to receive once again the tokens of His life, His body and blood, that they themselves become part of us and we of them, and that we are fully and truly united to Him in every way. Here again, these words of love, as He says in the upper room on that night, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again till I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's not just a ritual. It's not just a real a meal. It's a communion with Christ and a promise of the hope of glory. If you are in Christ, you share this hope of glory, baptized member of a church of our Lord Jesus, please join us at this meal. If, if not, I, I would recommend you to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Uh, this is a, a meal which is for you, Christian, a foretaste of glory. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we pray that Christ, who is in us, the very hope of our glory, would be again both uh, present and um, richly uh, transforming to our minds and our souls. We are at our best when we have our minds set upon the things that are above where Christ is. We are at our worst when we are cut off from all, when we are alone, when we have forgotten that relationship which you have sealed to us in our union with Jesus. So we pray that through this table, which is rightly called communion, that we would have our communion in Christ renewed 